Rothstein was made on October 28, 1978, at a three-month Vipassana meditation retreat held at Barrie, Massachusetts. Practice very much is involved with <coughs> coming to understand the different levels of experience, becoming fluid with the different perspectives, not getting stuck, not getting locked into any one angle or any one perspective of what's happening to us. Tonight I'd like to speak of a few of the different levels of experience that unfold and how they interrelate, interact with one another. <coughs> the first one, and the one which we're most familiar with in our lives, could be called the level of relative reality. That is that sense of being an individual in the world, that sense of being a separate self, an individual personality. And the work on this level is exploring that psychological space. Now, as you sit and watch your mind, you see that all kinds of memories and patterns and tapes and conditioning begins to emerge. And the beginning of practice is very much honoring and respecting and exploring all of that psychological content of the mind. To begin to recognize and become familiar with our own particular patterns of conditioning so that we don't get so totally caught or so totally identified and involved with it. This psychological level is an important one to begin to explore, to understand. It has to do with recognizing the self-images that we have of ourselves, of other people, of how we project ourselves to other people, how we're relating and interacting in interpersonal ways. This level of relative reality also has to do in a very interesting way with exploring how we create the world with our thoughts. Now, it's so often said in spiritual literature that the world is a manifestation of mind. What does that mean in terms of our own experience? We create so much of the world, we color so much of our experience by our projection of thoughts. You can see and get a very clear example of that in the walking meditation, because the disparity between the mental creation and the actual taking of a step on the ground is so clear. Walking along and the mind goes off on a particular thought fantasy of New York or Boston or California or your lover or what you're going to do when you go when you leave, or what you did before you came, and perhaps for quite a while lost in this mind realm, taking it to be very real. It's the power of the thought creates a whole reality. And we react to it, and are involved with it, and identified with it, until finally we take one step, and again touch the ground, and realize that all of that, that very invested reality, was just a creation of our thoughts. It's always been interesting to me, particularly in the walking, because 
it's so clear. There's movement and touch, and it's so grounding. And as Trungpa Rinpoche would say, it's so sane. It's so basic. And yet to watch the movement of mind in creating a mental world, that's part of this exploration of the relative reality, how we create ourselves. This is from <clears throat> the Zen doctrine of no mind. It says, all is mind made. It is like a person painting a tiger. They paint it, look at it, and are frightened. There is nothing, however, in the painted figure itself which is fearsome. All is the brushwork of our own imagination. And we do that so often. Our mind creates all kinds of imaginary concepts and ideas and invests a great deal of reality to it and then reacts to what we've created. And we react either with fear or attachment or aversion or desire or clinging. And it's all the brushwork of our imagination. To explore how this is working is very much the practice at this level of mind, this level of separate self, of personal identification, of psychological space. It has to do with understanding how our thoughts create and color the world and our experience has to do in a very profound way with the second noble truth of the Buddhist teachings. To begin to see how attachment to anything, attachment to any one aspect of this mandala creates suffering, creates pain. As long as we take a stand or identify with any one aspect, that very identification or attachment posits the basic duality of experience. As long as we take a stand on one thing as being I or being self, right in that attachment, in that identification, we've created separation, we've created duality, we've created suffering. We've created a solidification around a thought or an emotion, an experience. So again, to explore how that happens, to explore how we create that kind of solidification by attachment, by clinging. At this level of mind, it's as if we're relating to the world from an ego center. It's as if at the center of the mandala is an I, is a self, is an ego, is some separate entity, and we're relating to every part of experience as something apart from that. Relating from the ego center in a sense of separation, a sense of duality. It's essential to understand how this level of our experience works because it's only by exploring it and seeing how it all happens, how we create that ego center and that sense of duality, that we can begin to free ourselves a little bit from it. And we come to kind of intermediate level, starting at this relative, relative reality, going in the direction of a more, of an understanding of a greater, an absolute reality, absolute truth. There's an intermediate stage. And that has to do with developing and expanding 
our ability to love. Love is really the link between that ego center and the zero center of wisdom, of enlightenment. What does love mean in this sense? It's not so much the love coming from a self, coming from an ego. I love you, businessman's love. I'll love you if you'll love me back, or if you'll be a certain way, if you won't change. It's not that kind of dualistic state of mind. Rather, love in this sense, the love that leads to a very deep kind of wisdom, is a quality of mind the quality of mind of openness, really opening the heart, opening the mind, so that it's receptive to the entire range of experience without attaching or identifying or separating any one part of it. It's very open, it's very receptive, it's very soft. It's not particularly demonstrative. It's not sentimental, in the sense that we think of love from the movies. This is what Chuang Tzu, who's not particularly sentimental, <laughs> he, he expresses it very beautifully. If a man steps on a stranger's foot in the marketplace, he makes a polite apology and offers an explanation. If an elder brother steps on his younger brother's foot, he says, sorry, and that's that. <laughs> if a parent treads on his child's foot, nothing is said at all. The greatest politeness is free of all formality. Perfect conduct is free of concern. Perfect wisdom is unplanned. Perfect love is without demonstration and perfect sincerity offers no guarantee. And we're in that state of openness, of receptivity, of non-clinging, non-attachment, non-identification with any one part, it doesn't have to be demonstrated in any particular way. It's really a settling back into a very soft and responsive kind of awareness. It means opening to ourselves, opening to our experience in a very full way, opening to the pleasant things, the unpleasant. This kind of love or openness means opening to other people. And it's possible to increasingly come to a wonderful respect and appreciation of each person's manifestation in the world. It's all so miraculous. The Buddha said that he saw no thing as varied as the manifestation of mind. You know, it's so interesting to sit and do interviews. <coughs> kind of sit there, it's like a doctor's office or something. <coughs> People come in one after the other. And each mind is so different. It's like a whole new mind world is created with each person that comes in. And to have a sense of real appreciation for every mind manifesting exactly as it is is a wonderful sense of openness, and we can do that with everybody we meet. If we can free ourselves from that ego-centered space, where we're liking and disliking and judging, and rather just settle back and be receptive 
to everybody's very unique and singular energy. And then there's a lot of appreciation of the mind manifesting in this way, in this way, in that way. And that's much more the kind of love that leads to wisdom. It's a kind of love that's open. When the heart is open in that way, and not judging, there's an inflow and outflow of energy. There's a real energy exchange that's happening. It's a responding to what's coming in with naturalness, with spontaneity, with a, with a great deal of intuition. There's a story which symbolizes the power of love, the power of this kind of openness, and how things interact in very mysterious ways. A story is told of a group of people taking an examination at Oxford University, I don't know, 100 or 200 years ago. And the subject of the examination was to write an essay about the miracle Christ performed at the wedding, the wedding feast, where he turned water into wine. There's this room full of people who had the essay assignment writing this examination, and two hours long, and they're busy writing, writing, filling pages, describing the situation and explaining it, explaining the symbolism. There's one person in the room who's just sitting there not writing anything. An hour goes by, an hour and a half. It's getting close to the end of the time. And the proctor in the hall comes up to this one person who hasn't written anything and says, you know, there's just a few minutes left and you haven't written anything at all and everybody has filled these notebooks. <coughs> and this person who hadn't written anything happened to be Lord Byron. <coughs> and just about a minute or two before the end of the examination, he took his pen and wrote, the water met its master and blushed. <coughs> when you have a great mind, you can express in one line a great many of the interactions of things. You can express the kind of love and openness that's possible, not only between people, between all of us, us and our environment, the elements. It's a real interaction with the whole world. There's another aspect to this level of love or openness that I'm coming to appreciate increasingly in my own practice. And that's an appreciation of the intimacy of Dharma practice. I think there's nothing more intimate you can be doing than settling back into your experience. You know, so often when we're busy in the world, it's as if we're ahead of ourselves or in back of ourselves, or somehow not connecting in exactly the moment. Experience becomes so intimate within ourselves, with other people, with the environment, when we're totally settled right into the moment, settled back in a very full way. And there's a wonderful sense of the intimacy of exchange, the intimacy of sharing in that settled back into the moment.
the intimacy of the basic duality becoming a unity. Instead of relating to things from an ego center, to things outside of ourselves, it's that intimacy of settling back into a unity of experience. And it's exactly at this point that this stage of openness and love and receptivity and softness goes to the highest kind of wisdom, the level of absolute truth. This level of absolute reality is the experience of the oneness of things. No separation, no duality. In Zen it's called, one of the ways it's called, is the quality of suchness. Things just as they are. And it's so simple that the mind has a hard time experiencing it. Not because it's difficult, but because it's simple. When you hear a sound, just hearing, no bell, no ear, no self, just the suchness of the sound or the suchness of a sight. No need to create a duality, no need to create the concept of I'm hearing the bell, or I'm hearing the sound, or any kind of mental construct or separation, just the hearing, just the seeing, just the sensing. To come to that place of suchness is to go from the ego center of things to the zero center, to make the center of that mandala zero. Suzuki Roshi expresses this movement from egocentricity to zero-centricity very clearly. <coughs> he says, if your mind is related to something outside itself, that mind is a small mind, a limited mind. If your mind is not related to anything else, then there is no dualistic understanding. You understand activity as just waves of your mind. Big mind experiences everything within itself. Do you understand the difference between the two minds? The mind which includes everything and the mind which is related to something. Actually, they are the same mind, but the understanding is different, and your attitudes toward your life will be different according to which understanding you have. That everything is included within your mind is the essence of mind. The activity of big mind is to amplify itself through various experiences. In one sense, our experiences coming one by one are always fresh and new. But in another sense, they are nothing but a continuous or repeated unfolding of the one big mind. With big mind, we accept each of our experiences as if recognizing the face we see in a mirror as our own. For us, there is no fear of losing this mind. There is nowhere to come or go. There is no fear of death, no suffering from old age or sickness, because we enjoy all aspects of life as an unfolding of big mind.
to be exploring at this level of practice the experience not of the mind relating to things outside of itself, but to experience everything as being included within the mind. In that way of experience, there's no separation, there's no duality. There's just seeing, just hearing, just sensing, just thinking. And there's a wonderful and beautiful simplicity and effortlessness in that unfolding of experience. There's nothing to do and nothing to hold on to and nothing to get attached to. And that's really the third noble truth of the Buddhist teaching, which is the end of suffering, the letting go of personal identification. Our Dharma practice is involved with understanding each of these different levels. The level of relative reality, of psychological space, of how we get caught up in personality and self-images, and really going in and exploring how that happens. It's exploring the level of openness and love and receptivity and intimacy and sharing. It's coming to a place of non-duality, of oneness. How to play on all these different levels? People who are committed to practice very often have questions or confusion arise because we go from one level to another and as you hear different Dharma talks they may be coming from one or another of these levels. And the paradox is expressed very cleverly by Sansanin, the Korean Zen master. He said, there's no right and no wrong, but right is right and wrong is wrong. There's no right and no wrong. From a place of absolute truth, the concepts of right and wrong don't make any sense at all. There's no right and no wrong. And at the same time, right is right and wrong is wrong. And you have to honor that space too, because in the relative level of reality, there are right actions and wrong actions. Somehow to integrate that understanding so we can operate on both levels equally skillfully. It comes up a lot in Dharma teachings. On the one hand, there's a teaching about cultivating right thought and the value of the precepts and honoring what are wholesome actions and what are unwholesome actions. The first stanzas of the Dhammapada which is one of the most fundamental collections of the Buddhist teachings. The opening stanzas, all that we are is the result of what we have thought. It is founded on our thoughts. It is made of our thoughts. If a person speaks or acts with an unwholesome thought, suffering follows them as the wheel follows the foot of the ox that draws the wagon. All that we are is the result of what we have thought. It is founded on our thoughts. It is made up of our thoughts. If a person speaks or acts with a pure thought, happiness follows them like a shadow that never leaves. A very clear application of discriminating wisdom. Cultivate wholesome thoughts, and happiness follows you. Act on unwholesome thoughts, pain or suffering follows you. It's very different than the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. You know, sit back, choiceless awareness, no judging, no choosing. Let all thoughts just come and go without any judging, without any discrimination. 
coming from two very different levels of mind. They're both true. It's not to choose one and be locked into one level of understanding, to learn how to play on both. When we act in the world, <coughs> it's important to pay attention to the kind of energy we're putting out. In cultivating a very deep meditative understanding, let go of all discriminating. Sit back and watch everything arise and pass away. It's expressed, and we've talked about it in, in other Dharma talks, by Don Juan using different words. He talked about controlled folly and impeccability. On the one hand, we have to be impeccable in our actions, to really be full and total and wholehearted and careful. Because our acts have power, they, ha they bring results, they have a certain effect in the world, and so the need to be impeccable is important. And yet on the other hand, he talks about understanding the aspect of controlled folly, that it's all empty, it's all bubbles, there's no one there in the first place. Who is there to be impeccable? And somehow to balance those, to see that they're both aspects of our experience. It comes again, you read or hear that practice takes a lot of effort and a lot of striving. And if you work hard and you're diligent, the last words of the Buddha, according to one sutra, was he was addressing his disciples, strive on with diligence, right? And a lot of exhortation to put out a lot of effort. On the other hand, no gaining idea, no ambition, nothing to get, nothing to be, nothing to have. How do you put those together? From a relative point of view, you could think of us as being all bodhisattvas on the path of Buddhahood, walking on this path, going through various stages of wisdom and enlightenment. And another way of expressing it is that we are already Buddha, and that in every moment Buddha nature is being expressed. There's no right and no wrong, but right is right and wrong is wrong. We're already Buddha, and we still have to make effort. And those are not contradictory statements when you see it as reflecting different levels of our experience, different levels of reality these apparent contradictions begin to fall into place as the mandala of practice, of experience, unfolds, and you begin to come to a deeper understanding of how the mind works on these different levels. You become familiar with them. This is from the Third Zen Patriarch. Obey the nature of things, your own nature, and you will walk freely and undisturbed. When you are in bondage to thought, the truth is hidden, and everything is murky and unclear. And the burdensome practice of judging brings annoyance and weariness. What benefit can be derived from distinctions and separations? If you wish to move in the one way, do not dislike even the world of senses and ideas. Indeed, to accept them fully is identical with true enlightenment. There is one dharma, not many. Distinctions arise from the clinging needs of the ignorant. 
To come directly into harmony, simply say when thoughts arise, not to. In this not to, nothing is separate, nothing is excluded. No matter when or where, enlightenment means entering this truth. One thing, all things. Move among and intermingle without distinction and without fear. To live in this realization is to be without anxiety about imperfection. Because the non-dual is one with the trusting mind.